UX Podcast Episode 281. Hello, everybody, and welcome to UX Podcast, coming to you from Stockholm, Sweden. We are your hosts, James Royal Lawson. And Pan Axbom. And we're balancing business, technology, people, and society with listeners in 201 countries and territories in the world, from Ukraine to Uruguay. Vivian Castillo is founder of Humanity Centered, and one of the design industry's important voices advocating for and supporting professionals who want to help the UX industry and big tech live up to its ideals of empathy and inclusion. Vivian has experience from human services and counseling, tackling issues like shame, empathy, vulnerability, and compassion. Today we talked to Vivian about a research project on the topic of organizational trauma that Humanity Centered conducted in collaboration with D-Scout. Did you say D-Scout or D-Scout? D-Scout, I'd say. D-Scout, okay. We learn more about how organizations are tackling workplace trauma, how that is backfiring, and what should be going on instead. So Vivian, I've just been reading through this hugely comprehensive report, and I just want to hear some of the background story on how did you come about deciding to do this study, and and how did you go about really implementing the study as well? Yeah, absolutely. So... Um, I'm the I'm the founder of a professional growth community called Humanity Centered, and over the ca- over the past year, we've just been having some real and honest conversations about the context around the work of design within the companies that we work with, and we were realizing and recognizing that you know many of us are drawn to this industry because of the ideals around empathy and inclusion and being more human centered but we're often tasked with advocating for that work and advancing that work in environments that are often inherently hostile towards being human centered and more empathic and so we were hearing about a lot of different experiences around burnout around you know this idea of uh, institutional betrayal uh, we were hearing a lot of conversations about, hey, you know, I'm coming into this organization and they're talking about these values and I feel like I have those values too, but now that I'm working within these systems, it feels like there's a disconnect. And so we ended up partnering with D-Scout in order to do um, this incredible uh, labor of love and research to better understand the ways that organizational trauma is impacting and playing itself out within design organizations. And, you know, it's applicable too to other companies, industries, professions, you know, especially if extending empathy is a key aspect of your responsibilities. But that is how this came to be and how it is. It was, um, you surveyed, or you, you interviewed 29 individuals, kind of a, a quite a diverse group of individuals, as I understand from the report. Um, were the, the in-depth interviews you did, what was the, what was the method you used? So this research was like largely lifted and led by Alba and Karen. Alba is a a partner and a facilitator within Humanity Centered, um, and Karen is doing incredible research at D-Scout. And so uh, it was a mix of of surveys, it was a mix of diary studies, um, and really just leveraging the D-Scout tool in order to to capture and, and gather that information. 
the the report itself. Oh, before we jump into some of the details of the report itself, I, I was wondering, do you think you could help us understand what you mean by the the phrase um, organizational trauma? Yeah, yeah. So I think a lot of times when we think about trauma, you know, a lot of people, their mind goes to, in many ways, what TV and TV shows have kind of educated us on what trauma is. They're thinking big T trauma. So they're thinking natural disasters, you know, something horrific that maybe happened in your childhood. But, you know, there's a spectrum with trauma. And even on the other side of trauma, you know, you have, you know, things like a sudden move or maybe you had a really tough breakup. Um, but even within that mindset, a lot, of, a lot of times when we think about trauma, we tend to silo it to an individual. Organizational trauma is getting more at the ways that um, incredibly difficult or painful circumstances. So we would describe trauma as really any event or experience that leads to distress or impairment or emotional, physical, spiritual, or psychological harm. Um, Organizational trauma is getting at how those experiences play out at an org level. You know, you have it happening at an individual level, but then how does it also impact teams? How those teams impact the way that organizations think about caring for their employees, think about how they deliver tough and difficult news. You think about workplace trauma in terms of maybe you had a really toxic manager who was very demeaning and very unkind or, you know, very shaming in terms of how they treated you. Those are, those are things related to trauma that impact ultimately the work that we do, how we interpret people's behavior, how we trust others and collaborate with other people. One thing I really appreciated that you highlighted in the report is one of the reasons you chose designers as, as one of your target groups is because we work within this intersection of being human-centered in a in profit-driven environments, yes. would you say that we're especially sensitive then to these types of organizational trauma? That's a good question. I don't know if it's that we're sensitive to it. I think many designers weren't necessarily prepared for the ways that trauma and difficulty within corporate settings will play out. I think a lot of us, again, drawn to this feel this profession because many of us want to help people. Many of us care deeply about people. And so then we enter into capitalistic systems, into design orgs who also profess that. But a lot of us weren't necessarily prepared with the tools and the awareness of how to navigate those capitalistic systems, which if I'm being honest, I think at the end of the day, a lot of these systems are kind of depending on you not fully acknowledging your own humanity. Because there's a need, especially within large organizations, for people to assimilate, for people to align around how to drive profit. And within design, you know, a lot of us have these struggles of being people-centered, human-centered and profit-driven conversations. And so what we're noticing, and we're noticing a lot in conversations within Humanity Centered, is people are wanting more tools on, okay, how do I navigate corporate? How do I politic through corporate without losing myself? How do I deal with a manager who is also in design, you know, professes to value being human-centered, caring about people, and yet they're gaslighting my experiences? Or they keep, you know, ridic- you know trying to embarrass me in these meetings. And I kind of have to suck it up because I need to put myself on the back burner for the sake of users and our customers, which 
isn't necessarily healthy, but I think a lot of us kind of carry this burden of being the advocate, of being the champion. And more times than not, we neglect ourselves and we don't deal with the trauma. We don't deal with the workplace hardships that we've been experiencing all in the name of being human-centered to other people versus ourselves. I, I, what I find really fascinating about this is how, I mean, we've, we've, we've grounded the podcast um, back 10 years ago in the whole thing about breaking down silos. And back then, UX was really fighting, struggling with being heard, being seen, kind of like wanting to be part of organizations. Right. And, you know, a seat on the board was all that kind of stuff we used to hear. And, you know, thinking back and looking back, I don't think we ever discussed or even mentioned the, the, the trauma of that of that journey and that work. You know, the way you, you're saying now is that we've we've moved to a state where we probably haven't fixed that silo aspect of what we do but we're suffering because of the fight. Yeah, and you know, my, my theory behind this is, and I'm, I'm gonna generalize a little bit, when I think about the first wave of UXers, you know, when I think about a lot of well-known, recognized UX leaders, a lot of them uh, kind of fall into two buckets. They were responsible and leading the charge on proving the relevance of UX. Um, but also, too, a lot of these leaders tend to be white, tend to have a lot of privilege. And so when you mix those two together, you have this, this group of leaders who were advocating for, who were trying to push the relevance of UX. But within that, there was a missed opportunity for it to be more holistic in terms of understanding what it means to be human-centered, more equitable, and more inclusive. So now what I'm noticing within the UX community and just in general in the workforce, what I'm not hearing a lot of people talk about is you have four generations and you're seeing this within UX. So within the four generations, generalizing a little bit now, you know, you have Gen X and baby boomers who a lot of them too make up that first wave of UX leaders, you know, advocating for the importance of UX. You know, a lot of folks within this realm made a lot of their money off of, you know, a certain methodology that they evangelized and this kind of one to many approach to advancing the practice. Now you have Gen Z millennials. We're more diverse generations. We have also had the privilege of being able to talk more openly about mental health, about racism, about injustice in the workplace. We also have more expertise and maybe I would say a high level of competency of being able to talk about some of these things within the workplace. Whereas when you think about Gen X and baby boomers, typically in the relationship to work, you know, you just, you kind of, you do what you can, you try not to agitate too many people in the process, and you keep it moving. And so now what I'm noticing is this, like, kind of tension where you have that, like, kind of first wave of UXers who, again, kind of built their career on relevance, and now you're seeing more of this desire for, okay, let's talk about accessibility. Let's talk about what does it mean to be equitable and inclusive, and that first wave of UX leaders doesn't have the expertise and you know the ability to really push us towards maturity in that it's the younger generations um and i think too i mean again i'm generalizing a little bit because obviously you have some you know gen xers who are pushing boundaries within that work but i do think what it brings up is um within that there's also this tension this desire to like let's talk a little bit more about uh the emotional well-being of the ux person Let's talk a little bit more about the role of shame within UX research. Let's talk about the role of trauma, about compassion fatigue, this thing where, you know, I'm giving so much of myself that 
you know, some days I wake up wondering if I even like people. <laughs> and so I think we're, you know, I frame it as we're in this period of time where we're shifting from this advancement of relevancy of the practice to really a desire for maturity within the practice. I know that we've we've even mentioned before, um, we've touched upon the before about the um, perhaps the the need for us as designers to even go or have regular counselling. I mean, in, in many oh, professions yes. where I mean, you've got like counsellors themselves or psychologists and so on. It's part of their it's a requirement in some of these um, industries as part of being a licensed practitioner that you do actually get counselling because they acknowledge the the difficulty, and the trauma, and the the burden it puts on you as an individual doing some of these jobs. Oh, absolutely. In the report, you bring up uh, how, how people express that they are exposed to trauma in research on and on. Exactly. I mean, mm. you know, my background is uh, in counseling and human services, mm. specifically mm. within trauma and addiction counseling. You know, I made my career switch mm. out of counseling into UX and big tech. And, you know, what was interesting to me, especially switching into UX, was initially, again, super excited about how people talked about empathy and inclusion And I remember going to my first design conference, it was the O'Reilly Design Conference. Super excited to see a lot of heads of you know, that, you know, design, see a lot of well-known UX leaders. And I remember after that conference, just kind of sitting in my hotel room and being like, wow, this is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of just like mm. how we talk about being human-centered and like caring about people. Yeah. Because from a counseling background, You know, even things like ethics, right? This is literally day one, every quarter, every semester, you're talking about ethics. And now I enter into UX where now UX, you know, now this idea of ethics is kind of like a hot topic and it wasn't something that was already being championed by that first wave of UX leaders. I'm like, that's mm -hmm. weird. You know, within counseling programs, a lot of programs, counseling, social work will mandate that the students take X amount of sessions, counseling sessions, because... They recognize that because you are interacting so closely with the messiness and the complexity of being human, that it's going to stir up some of the messiness and things that you maybe need to work through and heal through in order to do that work well. It's, it's viewed as an ethical responsibility to go to counseling so that mm. you limit the possibility of you causing harm to other people because you haven't done your own work. And so, I mean, I think... Everyone within UX design, especially folks who are in like civic tech um, or who working who are working with you know minoritized or marginalized communities um, or refugees or whatever it may be, like absolutely, I think everyone should spend some time in counseling and, and doing some personal work so that they can limit some of the harm that they might cause to other people in the process. And in the in the uh, report, uh, in one of the playbooks, and I think we should start getting to the playbooks. Uh, there are there are four playbooks that you 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 I think you use the term playbook to make a, have a metaphor for how organizations actually address these things. They think it's like they have to do a strategy in the same way that they address different types of problems as organizations or as organizations in other areas. Uh, and the one I was thinking of just now when you were uh, were saying these things was the minimizer, which uh, from what I gather is actually the one that. Uh, most people that you interviewed uh, and were part of the study actually referenced uh, as the playbook where people are really discouraged to have any thoughts that might distract them from being productive. And uh, one of the effects of that was this this temptation 
to neglect your own self-care in service of caring and advocating for others. And of course, that also impacting especially women, people of color, or disabled people. Uh, so that, I mean, that, that's that was the one that struck me the, the hardest. I think was that that how could how, you call this a playbook? But for me, it was like this is a, abuse. <laughs> yeah, I mean, things like things like gaslighting, things like you know, when an organization, when a system encourages you to minimize your human experience, it's abusive. Um, you know, this is things that we see in domestic violence relationships. This is see- things that we see within, you know, abusive uh, relationships around power. So it is. And, um, you know, I think with, with the minimizing, too, you know, what what worries me the most, it concerns me the most about this, specifically with designers, is that by neglecting and minimizing your own experience, you are also creating more distance between you and your understanding of what does it mean to be human-centered. A lot of times when we talk about being human-centered, it's towards other people, but we actually have to, we have to do that for ourselves too. And it's so incredibly important for us to do that because the thing about trauma is that oftentimes, you know, our minds and our bodies will suppress symptoms of trauma, even memories, until it feels like you're safe enough to process it. But your body will still hold on to it it will still store it. And if you don't deal with the trauma, if you don't deal with the hardship, it will deal with you at some point or another. And it's why I'm seeing and talking to a lot of design professionals who are burning out and wanting to leave the field or they don't recognize themselves anymore in terms of like the passion and the care that they had for people. It's why I think you're also noticing a lot of designers who are really struggling with having this... uh, a sustainable career in this because mm. they weren't necessarily prepared for the emotional labor, not only within the work, but around the work within the systems that we work in and, and how to manage it and how to deal with it. I think that the numbers from the study were 93% thought about quitting their job in the last year or had already done so, and almost 60% considered leaving the design industry altogether. And I think those numbers really speak for the importance of having done the study. Yeah. That's terrifying, right? Of like, there's so many people who are suffering in silence. And that should grieve the community, right? We should, this is a a crisis that we actually need to start addressing in terms of providing care and support and more of a holistic understanding about what the cost is of this work. Not only doing the work, but the cost of working within these systems that really at a foundational level are kind of hoping that you don't fully acknowledge and own the fullness of your humanity and your needs, all in the sake of the business and driving the bottom line. I think as well, a a time now when um, we're seeing more um, newly educated designers come into profession than any other time before. I mean, our industry is constantly growing. It's, you know, as more and more companies adopt um, supposedly user-centered um, ways of working or, or um, UX as a, as, a, as a concept, we're just pumping in more and more designers. And these um, young designers are coming out of education without any understanding of this. They're not prepared for dealing with um, personal trauma and organizational trauma. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we need to, you know, there's a time and place for learning about how to do journey maps, user personas, whatever. 
But I think we're actually at a time where we we really do need to prioritize this idea of not just self-care, but really this idea of self-care as an ethical imperative, self-care as a way for designers then to feel like they have more confidence, more freedom, more autonomy to push back in these systems and to to advocate for other people. Um, And I think with organizational trauma, like one thing that I recognize as well, this is within the study, this is within talking to people inside of outside of Humanity Centered, is this, that sometimes it is more comfortable to sit in the pain of what is familiar, like a toxic workplace or an unhealthy team, than to choose to heal, to choose the pain that comes with healing. Because healing's painful. Um, we can teach you how to cope in toxic workplaces, but we can't teach you how to heal. You have to remove yourself or create some distance between the toxicity and the thing that is, um, on, you know, the thing that would be going against your healing in order for you to heal. And healing's painful because healing brings up memories that, again, your mind kind of pushed to the back so you could survive and compartmentalize and kind of be in that moment. Healing requires you to maybe leave a team or to leave a company or to take short-term leave and then to confront some of the unhelpful beliefs you have about your value and how it's tied to productivity and work. Healing's painful, but healing is abundantly there and is able to be achieved. I know, Per, you've brought up um, Playbook 3 in the report, um, The Minimizer, but I think it's I think it's valuable for us to just, if only briefly, just go through the four playbooks so people are aware mm. of, of, um, of of what was the, the general findings of, of, of playbooks. Um, I mean, quickly, I'll, I'll read the four out, and maybe you, uh, Vivian, can tell us more about it. One playbook was the DIYer. Uh, second playbook was the Empty empathizer and third one of course was the minimizer fourth was the performer just tell us briefly about those four playbooks yeah you know the the diy playbook is you know this is when you see organizations talk about what resources they have available and it's just kind of this idea of here are the resources go heal yourself it's not necessarily addressing the systems or the culture or the people that are responsible for the harm and the trauma that's happening within the the team and organization level. It's more of, here's some resources that you need, figure it out, and good luck. The empty empathizer, I think, you know, maybe more times than not can come from a good good place and and good intention. I mean, I think all these can, but I think especially with the empty empathizer, I think a lot about the summer of 2020 in the United States where, it was just a trash fire. And a lot of companies, too, were having to deal with racial injustice for the first time or trying to, to care. And, and a lot of times what it was was uh, creating spaces to listen, to learn, to gather data. But then there wasn't necessarily action or alignment on what's next. It was a lot of taking and a lot less around communicating, okay, what is actually going to be done with this this information? And all, more times than not, puts the emotional burden on the individual um, in that moment. You have the minimizer, which again is, um, you know, organizations who are using the minimizer playbook tend to have a company culture that values speed, competition, and resilience. 
Um, but this is the one where we talked about where they don't necessarily want you to be distracted from, you know, the task at hand to driving productivity, productivity and the business. So usually within the minimizer playbook, there's a tendency to prioritize optimism. This is where you see a lot of companies who lean a little bit too heavy, uh, on toxic positivity. Um, there is, you know, a temptation to minimize panic and negativity and, you know, employees are generally like encouraged to be autonomous and self-sufficient in terms of how they deal with those hardships. And then the last one that we have is the performer. And, you know, the performer is, you saw this a lot too in the summer of 2020. These are public statements from a company we stand with, whatever community is being, you know, terrorized at the moment. And we commit to donating some money to this charity or this nonprofit. Um, it's the it's more of a reactive response. It tends to prioritize public approval versus what the employees actually need. And more times than not, again, it falls on the burden. The burden tends to fall on employees to drive change versus actually investing resources, time, and energy within design. The way that I see this played out the most is, oh my gosh, yes, we value accessibility. We value diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, can you volunteer an additional 30 hours on top of the 40 hours we hired you for to do so, to do a committee, to have an initiative, to drive this, and yet we're not going to pay you more? We're not going to consider it in terms of your promotion? And uh, yeah, that, that's how we show that we care. Um, and that's incredibly harmful. Uh, that's performative. That is, uh, instead of actually, again, caring about the people that are behind those initiatives and that are driving that work. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's just, it's gaslighting. Uh, some of the stuff to do with the performer, it's just gaslighting in order to main, maintain a, a, a perceived corporate culture, I guess. Yeah, and gaslighting, yeah. I mean, and again, I don't use that term lightly, especially coming from a mental health background. Gaslighting... Mm -hmm is it's a common emotional abuse tactic. Um, and what it does is it makes a receiver doubt their perception of reality. I mean, I think we can all think of those moments, right, where we were talking about something that was very real, very painful and difficult, and someone was, like, trying to convince you to think about the brighter side of things. Or, well, it's not that bad. You know, no place is perfect and trying, trying to, like, minimize it. It's, so it's when you have that colleague or that manager who breaks down your confidence by constantly questioning your judgment or downplaying and dismissing your impact all in the name of helping you get better. Um, and I think the other thing to talk about, along with gaslighting, is this idea of moral injury. And this is something that you kind of see. Uh, you see this common thread throughout this report. And so when we talk about moral injury we're referring to damage done to someone's conscience or moral compass within the workplace. So moral injury can come from actions that the person themselves perpetuates, situations they have witnessed, or situations in which um, they have failed to prevent specific activities from taking place that go against their own beliefs. So many designers can resonate, especially with that last one, right? Um, situations in which, you know, they have failed to prevent specific design decisions, research decisions from taking place that go against their own beliefs about caring about people. And moral injury is it's a concept that covers the psychological, social, cultural 
and spiritual aspects of trauma. And when I talk about spirituality, I'm using Brene Brown's definition of these are the things that ground you and give you purpose and meaning. For some people, it might be, you know, going to church or to mosque. For other people, it's gardening and going hiking. Um, And so when moral injury does occur, it can result in profound emotional guilt and shame for the victim. Um, And we see a lot of that within design where people struggle uh, with shame, with guilt of, is there something wrong with me? Or did I do something wrong that could have harmed that customer or could have harmed my colleague? Um, And I think it's important for us to start having more conversations and providing more language around these very real complex human experiences that we, we go through in this work. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, that's that's when when things clash with your core values, then it 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 triggers, it sets off a reaction which is is built is based on your core values, and they are something yeah. that don't just change overnight and don't just accidentally change to match company company cultures and so on. There there are your core values. You've been brought up with the process of them being formed. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, this is the important finding f- from the study, isn't it? That all these playbooks that you've sort of helped uh, use to categorize all your different findings show that everything that the companies are doing, even if they're doing doing it with uh, benevolent intent, they're just as harmful as the problems they intend to address. So they just exacerbate the problems, yes. which is just hugely, hugely important to understand. Uh, and if the organizations, uh, well, they, they claim to be uh, empathetic, then they should be able to actually understand the content of the study as well and how they should change. Yeah, and I think what it does is it challenges companies, organizations, design teams to be more innovative and thoughtful to how do you solve this problem. You know, organizational trauma isn't an issue that can be waved away with a few employee resources or toxic positivity or press releases. Like, if organizations really do want to improve their employee experience, they actually need to have a deeper understanding in the cost of healing and being willing to invest in healing organizations as a whole. There's a level of accountability that goes into this, right? You can't necessarily treat something that's really complex and messy like organizational trauma in the same way you would scaling a sales initiative or scaling a new design system that you're implementing across the company. There's a level of intentionality and expertise that also has to be brought into that. It's not always, you can't prioritize scale, scale, scale at first. You have to actually think more about the people and the problem. You have to think about the context around that problem too. Um, And so, yeah, I think it's a challenge. And I think that companies are going to have to, design teams are going to have to figure this out in light of even just the shift that we're seeing in the workforce. You know, with 2020, Mm -hmm. people started to have the scales fall off their eyes and they were like, wait, I think I want better. I think I deserve better. I think I'm going to go get better. And you're seeing companies who are now having to rise to this challenge of actually caring about their employees. And they're struggling because they're realizing that, you know, many of us aren't willing to drink the Kool-Aid anymore. Many of us don't want to just survive in the workplace. We want to flourish. And so you have to be creative. You have to be more thoughtful and innovative in how you do that. And at the end of the of the four playbooks, you propose a fifth playbook. I mean, I'm, I'm interpreting it as you propose a, a fifth playbook as a, as a solution to this. And it was the, the trauma-informed organization. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and we shifted it to like, you know, the fifth and final playbook. It's it's really not a playbook at all. It's about adopting mindset shifts because with the playbooks, the playbooks are about a go to set of tactics used to address the problem. But we recognize that before you even get to thinking about tactics, per se, there has to be a mindset shift. You have to start thinking a little differently about trauma, a little differently about the issues, and a little differently about how do you actually move towards being more human-centered. So some of the shifts that we talked about in the report was the shift from trauma is an individual issue to organizational trauma is a systemic issue, not just an individual issue. You know, we talked about from we need to prioritize communicating information in scalable, effective ways to we need to prioritize communicating information in psychologically safe and trauma-informed ways. And more times than not, it's not necessarily about speed and like efficiency. It's about tone. It's about the way that you deliver those messages. Uh, Another mindset shift we talked about was uh, from we need to sponsor employee-led efforts made up of volunteers to we need to hire external support from entities with expertise, not to be confused with passion or interest, in trauma-informed and equity-centered practices. And the last mindset, sh- mindset shift that we proposed was, you know, from the lack of equitable and trauma-informed behaviors is a personality issue to the lack of equitable and trauma-informed behaviors is a performance issue. And that's where, like, that accountability mm-hmm. piece gets in, into place, where we need, to, we need to start understanding the impact this has, not only at, at, at an organizational culture level, but on the business. And so when you have a toxic manager who, you know, Benjamin keeps getting promoted, even though he's a terrible human being because he's crushing his numbers, but you keep having people leave that team, that's impacting the bottom line because of the cost to recruit, to hire, to bring more people in. And so you have to start to view that less as a personality issue, more as a performance one and train and support accordingly. I love it. Uh, And I think when you're ending on, and I think you also introduced the report in the way that you act, it's healing because it allows people to understand that I'm, I'm feeling this way and I suspect that maybe my organization has something to do with it. And yes, now that has been acknowledged and you can feel safe in that understanding. Yes. And as you say, it's painful. Healing has to be painful. And I just have to acknowledge how fantastic I thought it was that the report itself is such a great example of how you're paying attention to the reader, uh, that you're acknowledging that and saying up front, please listen to your body and prioritize your self-care while reading, because just reading this, of course, can be triggering yes. and painful. Which but is, yeah, which is you, causing you your impact because you've got yeah. like everyone's going to recognize some parts of their working lives in these playbooks I described exactly. there. I think even if you're not American, like we're Swedish or we're working in Sweden, you mm. still recognize yourself mm. in the thing. So, yeah, you're getting traumatized yourself by reading it. Mm. Yeah. But you don't just stop there. You actually have the breathing exercises. Yes. Integrated into the report. And I've never seen that before, but it was hugely appreciated. It was fantastic. And I realized that's something I want to do more of. And see more of. Yeah. You know, that decision came from, I remember mm. reading uh, just from top to bottom the first draft of the report, and I felt really traumatized <laughs> as I'm like thinking about my experiences mm. and thinking about people or even stories I forgot about. And so I was talking to the team and I was like, we need to have some mindfulness breaks in here because this is heavy and we need to care for our readers so we don't 
Um, we don't put them in a place where they're not able to ground themselves. And so uh, what a lot of people don't know actually is, um, so I wrote the, the breathe in, breathe out uh, mindfulness parts of this report. And I actually, these are affirmations and exercises that I've walked through in my own healing journey. Um, and so being able to like share that back with the community, or these are these are things and messages that I've had to uh, embody and sit with and really like believe in to help with my healing. And, um, you know, I was talking to, to someone the other day who, who read the report and, you know, they asked me, they're like, how do you how do you know that you've been healing? Um, and I told them, I was like, honestly, the first thing that comes to mind is I'm less afraid. I'm like, I'm less afraid. And I didn't realize when you're in the midst of coping, when you're in the midst of survival, when you're in the midst of being in that comfort or the space of the pain of the toxic situation, there's so much fear around that. When you get presented new ideas or new opportunities, your mind immediately goes to why it won't work, what will get in the way, or why it's not possible. Now, as I'm, I would say, you know, 10, 12 months into my own healing journey, now if I, you know, I'm encountering those ideas or those opportunities, I'm much more quickly to pivot to, okay, what else can we do? How can I push back on that? Uh, and I'm not necessarily thinking about how I need to protect myself. Because when you're in the midst of a traumatic situation, it's about protection. It's about survival. It's why a lot of people can heavily compartmentalize because they got to they got to bring home the paycheck. They got to keep it moving. But there is a time. There's a time to do that. But my encouragement to folks and to people who are listening to this podcast is to recognize the pain in terms of your current situation. And to be able to acknowledge, yes, the pain it will take to heal, but to start making moves towards that healing and to recognize that in doing so as well, like, I don't think healing was, is really ever meant to be a solo journey. I think healing is meant to be a shared one. I think it's about bringing together a care community, whether that is people you trust, that's a therapist, that's people who don't work in design. Let me tell you. You need people. You need friends who don't work in design or big tech. Like, um, and having people where you can feel safe with to talk about what you're going through and to start that healing, because I think a lot of people are hesitant to choose the path of healing because of it feeling lonely or being worried that it's more lonelier than the current path that they're on in their current situation. Um, but it doesn't have to be that way, and it does get better. I think that's a absolute excellent um, point to finish on and mm. encouraging point to finish on. Um, thank you, Vivian, for um, joining us. It's so been much. really enlightening and really good fun. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. When Vivian shared us the um, article, the research um, ahead of the interview, and I was starting to read it, I was, um, I was, a little bit concerned at first that oh this is going to be really US centric um it's going to be dominated by you know, it's US US research and about US working conditions mm. um and and is that going to be relevant for the rest of the world um you know because of course we, a third of our listeners approximately um are in the US 
but we've got listeners in in lots of other countries, as we say in the intro, and vastly different countries. Yeah. These Russia, Hong Kong, Iran, Brazil, Japan, Zambia, just to throw out six. Th- those countries are very different in many, many ways. But thankfully, oh, I say thankfully? Yeah. <laughs> uh, thankfully. Uh, I, I mean, it's from a, from a Swedish perspective. Um, I'm going to ignore the UK's perspective because that's, that's, I don't want to unpack that. But the, yeah, from a Swedish perspective, then, then I do recognise some of the playbooks um, from my own working experience here in Sweden. Yeah. Um, so that made me feel reassured, I guess, that the research did highlight things and, and lift things that were beyond the boundaries of, of the United States of America. Yes, I think. And that's also, also a testament to what a good job they did of, of actually naming the playbooks and describing the playbooks, I think, in a way that people can take something from them and understand that, yes, this is this is relevant to me. That playbook, yes, I've seen that. I've seen pieces of that playbook. Uh, it's easier to talk about. It's easier to recognize. Uh, but also, I, I and one of the reasons I really uh, thought that these exercises of of mindfulness throughout the report helped me because I was, when, when you're le- reading through this, you think of situations in your working life that have been really bad. Yeah, and you start to reflect back, or you project, don't you? Yeah. When you when you hear the playbook, is when you start reading about um, uh, the the minimizer, then you start thinking back and and projecting yourself and situations onto that playbook, and that, yeah, that was a page from that playbook that I lived through. Yeah, I think one thing I wanted to pick out that we didn't have time for during the interview was how. Uh, it was a huge realization and really important for companies to realize as well that when they allow people to create these uh, working groups or and they, they create safe spaces for these, what's it called, employee resource groups. Uh, yeah. The way it's done today, I mean, when you and I started working, we didn't have these digital spaces where everything like that went on. Now you have the digital spaces, which means that those spaces themselves can turn surveillance and also coercive, so you become afraid of participating because you think that can actually backfire and be used against you. Yeah, it, it's a, it's another um, psychological aspect to take to take on board um, when we are dealing with remote working and um, and these kind of um, um, services and tools and and, and um, facilities that are made available to you. I think and. Um, I also really like um, what Vivian brought up about the the generations or waves of UXs. Um, yeah, first wave and second and, wave. Yeah, yeah, and yes, we, me and you, pair are firmly rooted, I guess, in the Generation X. Um, well, we're not baby boomers, but Generation X definitely um, first wave of of UXs, um, and we're, we're white and we're privileged. Mm. Um, so, so we we tick an awful lot of boxes there. And, but it was interesting to reflect um, about well those generations, but also the waves. And, and Vivian mentions the, the move from advancement um, or the wave of advancement and then the wave of maturity. Um, that's not just about the, the groups of people, but also uh, whereabouts you are in your journey with UX. Mm. And, and I think... But also I think um, this genera- generational thing where, where people of the younger generation actually feel a lot more comfortable talking about mental health. And I see this so much when I'm teaching as well. They call me out. They are better at seeing things sometimes than I am. Uh, and it's 
of course, that's that's hugely important to recognize and acknowledge, and let them take over. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've 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 mentioned previously about the cascading uh, cascading knowledge. So how we, it takes generations for things to kind of like filter down, or for even for change to to mm. happen, takes a long time. And yeah, when we started working um, with with usability or with with digital interfaces and so on, then you know it was pre-internet. Mm. Um, or it, the internet was on on the verge of 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 coming mm. uh, mainstream. Um, so anyone that we were working with at that point were proper old school. You know, they were baby boomers. <laughs> mm. um, and then as we've you know gone on that that time ten years ago when ten or more years ago when we're pushing for UX, then yeah, we were the next wave. And then there's a new wave coming now, and everything's getting shuffled along a level. And yeah. Um, granted, this will vary from country to country and from organization to organization. It's it's not all these things are not set in stone. They're generalizations, just like Vivian says in the interview. I also like that you called out why why is ethics coming now? Why wasn't it part of it at the beginning? I mean, that's such an important observation. Which which connects w perfectly with what she says about the waves. Yeah, that exactly. The when the first wave of UX was. The focus was on advancement. The focus was on, as I mentioned, getting that seat on the board, getting getting resources to mm. do UX at all, or whatever you want to call call you know, the thing we are doing. Um, there was so much focus on that. It was you know, stay on target, stay on target. We've got to, to a degree, play the game of the organisations you were in, because back then, those were the organisations, and you weren't going to go. You didn't. You couldn't change the organisations before you actually then get um, advancement of UX. Mm. You had to play the game to an extent to get the advancement of UX, and then we got there. And then it's about maturity, yeah. maturing the practice, because it's now established. I honestly believe everybody needs to read this uh, this paper and this research. It's so important because it. I mean, I think it stretches out and addresses not just the workplace but actually well-being in general. Yeah. I think this is going to be one of those episodes, Perry, that we recommend people to share with their managers. Yes, good point. And we also have some uh, uh, recommended listening for you. I know you picked out the mental health episode, I believe. It seemed a bit of an obvious one. Yeah. But it's a good one and an important one. It is, really. Episode 197, Mental Health with Jennifer Akulian. And if you can spare a little bit of your time, then join our little community of volunteers. We're always looking for help with transcripts, publishing, and references for our show notes. And the easiest way to volunteer is to email hey at uxpodcast.com. That's H-E-J or H-E-Y. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. James, do you know what the buffalo said to his son when he left for college? No, I don't know what the buffalo said to its son when it left for, con for college. Bye, son. Oh.
you did lower the bar with that one. 